Let's bow together. Oh, before we bow, uh, just uh, let you know today's message has some things in there that are not appropriate for younger kids. So if you're on the Internet listening, uh, just take them to the side. Uh, they can still hear within a shot, earshot, but have them read the Bible or draw Abraham or whatever it might be and uh, have them do that. But uh, just that little warning in that sense. And, and that can stay open if you want. If you want, that's fine. Um, and so uh, just want to let you know it's not appropriate for, for younger ears, some of the pieces that we'll look at today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have. Thank you for the privilege we have to be together singing your praises, declaring your excellencies. And Lord, as we come to your word, I pray you'd help me to share it exactly as you desire, uh, that it would go out uh, powerfully, not by my strength or ability, but by your spirit, Lord God, so that we would uh, hear your word and your spirit would work in our hearts and we would be changed. I ask you to bless your word as it goes out. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've already warned uh, about uh, things that could be said that, uh, you know, if you're really paying close attention, you know, probably not appropriate. But uh, again, if it's just a side, you know, noise and they're playing, that's fine. But uh, it's not appropriate for kids. But you all know this. We all know this, that we live in a society that is sexually driven. Just look on TV. Just look at uh, Super Bowl ads. You know, it comes to the point where you have to have a clicker to uh, turn them off for a, for a football game. Or just go in the line at the store, grocery store, and you see all the magazines on there. That's, we live in a sexually driven society. And uh, it's no wonder uh, those who uh, don't know Christ are living and walking in that, just as we did before we got saved. Our society is driven by uh, outward wickedness and now these days through a lot of social media. A lot of social media, the, the perversion on social media that comes up right away on YouTube will suggest things. It's bad. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, TikTok, whatever it might be, those terrible apps that uh, have terrible things. Uh, it's all around us. Now, we as believers, we know that those things aren't right. We know that that's not where our heart should be, and we don't desire to be there. But yet we still stumble and fall at times. We still sin. And so how can we um, walk in the context of sexual purity? That's what we're going to see today. And uh, as we're going through Colossians, I felt it would be good to divert today to Matthew chapter 7. Excuse me, chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And so let's turn there to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 27 to 30. And this will be helpful for us to get a baseline for what we will see in Colossians chapter 3. Indeed, in Colossians chapter 2, we've seen that the, the Colossians didn't want to indulge in fleshly indulgence, and the false teachers were coming along with a way to uh, help them with that. But it wasn't any help at all. And as we're going to see today, it's only through the person of Jesus Christ changing a heart that we are enabled to not sin. And when we do sin, God's a gracious God and forgives us. And so let's take a look. Turn with your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, looking at verses 27 to 30. Now at this point, uh, we know King Jesus has come upon the scene. God has taken on human flesh. Uh, He has come to his own, and they were sitting in darkness. They've seen a great light. And at this point in Matthew, he's beginning to share his teaching. He's going to teach about the kingdom and that uh, kingdom righteousness. And he's going to share it in a way where he exposes kingdom righteousness, which exposes phony righteousness, which is really lawlessness. He's going to expose the Jews who believed that they were saved in what they were doing as they followed God's word, but their hearts hadn't been changed. And so he begins with a picture of those who are truly saved, the Beatitudes, blessed are. And he shares the characteristics of those who are actually in his kingdom. And then from there, we see that the same king, those who are in his kingdom, we see that how they are to relate to the world. Uh, That true believers are salt and light in a sin-sick and dark world. You see, when someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when someone's truly saved, delivered from darkness to light, delivered to the kingdom of his beloved son, we are now the flavor of his righteousness in a corrupt world. And so as we trust and obey God, 
His righteousness will be manifest. We are the salt of the world. And we are also the light of the world. You can't miss it. You can't not see it unless you cover it up. We are the light of the world. And then it's from describing those who are truly in the kingdom, the blessed, and their relationship to the world. At this point, Jesus moves to describing uh, uh, the very foundation of kingdom living, which is himself and his word. In relationship to his word, Jesus came to fulfill the word. And King Jesus revealed uh, to his disciples commands that uh, his word would be fulfilled in us. And indeed, your kingdom status depends upon obedience to his word fulfilled in you. And then he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that, verse 20, of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be pretty righteous to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees at that time, as we will see, they were pretty darn righteous on the outside. But Jesus says it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. And so from there, he begins to share six corrections to Jewish misconceptions. You've heard it said, and he'll share the Bible verse in a sense, how it's brought forth, and then add in the interpretation of the Pharisees. But I say to you, and it's in this portion we come to the second one of those, you have heard it said, but I say to you. We'll get to Matthew uh, 5.27 in a minute. We'll read that, but... In verses 21 to 48, we have the phrase, uh, you have heard literally five times and then implied, and then uh, six times, but I say to you, six specific areas. And again, we're going to look at the second one today, but let me just show you the first one, and we'll just briefly look at that for a second, and then we'll go to the one we're going to look at today. Because I believe we're going to see that everybody has struggled with anger and everybody struggled with lust. And everybody is thus guilty. Whether you've committed the actual act of murdering somebody or adultery, everyone is guilty. They go together. He says in verse 21, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, I'm not going to teach through this one here on anger, but I just want to talk through it briefly as context to move into our passage. And again, he says here, Basically, and I'm going to summarize what he's saying. He's saying, you've heard through your teachers, basically, based on the ancient teachers, that you should not murder, and if you do, you're guilty before the court. It's basically what he's saying. But Jesus is saying, that's not the complete story. That's what you've been taught. That's what you have heard. Now, we'll remember, we might remember from Colossians, the bad guys were using the Old Testament. They were saying, you should do this and this and this. They may even use verses from the Old Testament, Right? to help you with your battle in the flesh. Now, these guys were saying, hey, here's, the, here's what God says. And then they were adding in their traditions, and they weren't sharing the heart of what truly God intended with those truths. He says here, uh, but he says, but I say to you, the Lord Jesus, uh, the God who gives the sixth commandment to you, he says, but I get, say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You say, oh my, everyone? Yes, everyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment, is guilty, is guilty. Jesus goes beyond the action of the external commandment, which they've all been taught about, don't stab somebody, don't uh, cut somebody up, don't don't murder them, right? To To the heart of the issue, the heart motive that brings about the action. The heart motive behind the breaking of the command, which is anger, which is anger. And remember, Scripture reveals that anger is sin, that apart from the momentary anger that comes from in, a, in the context of maybe something righteous, uh, we can't handle it more than a day. We're not to allow the sun to go down on our anger. We're, we're to be angry but not sin. And then later on, Ephesians, that was Ephesians 4.26, later on, we're to put aside all anger. We're to have any anger in that context. We're to put aside malice. And we're to forgive one another because God and Christ has forgiven us. And then the Lord Jesus, with this first portion, gave two illustrations to make clear the Jews, by being angry, were guilty enough to go to hell. Okay, just from anger. Anger is enough. Anger is the root under murder. Okay? So everyone is guilty of murder on a heart level when you're angry at your brother. 
So uh, everyone who's been angry in that context thus is guilty. Everyone's guilty. And this truth alone should have pierced through the self-righteous externalists who would say, I'm righteous because I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't murdered anybody. I've kept the commandments. You know, but yet they have been angry. Even so much as a thought in the heart from where your actions come renders you guilty before God and subject to judgment. Subject to judgment. So in continuing now that sin is a matter of the heart that must be drastically dealt with, he now goes on from anger to sexual lust. And think about that. Anger and sexual lust, those are the most powerful areas of sin. They really are. Anger and sexual lust, most powerful mankind. And so he moves to expansion to the intent of the commandment, which is to not commit adultery in the next portion here. So how can we walk in sexual purity? First of all, we need to realize that adultery, and we'll talk about sexual impurity in a minute, is a matter, first and foremost, of the heart. Of the heart. Let's look at our passage, verse 27. You have heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart, already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to have one of the parts of your body perish than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better that for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, for some reason, you have to leave this message at this point. Make sure you come back to it before you pull your eye out and cut off your hands. All right? Because we're going to see in the context of God's word what is intended by this passage. Okay? We're going to see that. So don't run out and do anything crazy. Okay? So notice what they had heard. This is what the Jews had heard. You have heard it said you should not commit adultery. But then he says, but I say to you. That's the formula of the six areas that he's talking about in there. This is what you've been taught. You've been taught the seventh commandment, right? Pretty clear statement on adultery here. Now the term adultery, what this means is, 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 is sexual contact between a man and a woman, uh, one who is married or both are married, but obviously not to each other. Okay? That's what it's talking about. Certainly these Jews, like with murder, would have probably I've uh, been taught the scriptural consequences to adultery under the law that they had at that time. Leviticus 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulterer shall surely be put to death. That's the, that's the, that's what God's view of that sin was, okay? Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lie with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. And it goes on and talks about it. The reality is, God said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, you've heard it said. Now, what these Jews were doing, where they were just saying, hey, I haven't done that. I'm pretty clean before God. I'm looking good. I haven't murdered anybody, and I haven't gone with anybody's wife. Whatever. I'm clean. I'm good. Well, Lord Jesus is going to say, hey, and it's interesting he would say this here. He doesn't say, hey, but he says, you've heard it said, and then he quotes scripture. Why would he say that? Why wouldn't he say, it is written? Why wouldn't he say, it is written, you shall not commit adultery? Why would he say, you have heard it said? Because he's putting the point that the scripture that they have heard, which is the truth, has been interpreted wrongly. You see, a lot of people buy into wrong understandings because there is a piece of scripture that is true but pulled out of its context. And so he's discrediting the whole thing but not the truth, as we'll see. He's going to reveal what's underlying that. You have heard it said, but he says, but I say to you. And now this is emphatic. It's emphatic. Hey, Joe, something out in the back there on our air conditioner, banging on it, probably a bird. So he says, but I say to you, and in Greek it is emphatic. It's emphatic. 
you could say it this way. This is uh, this is actually the actual Greek, by the way. It's kind of funny. Ego de lego. <laughs> but I say to you, okay? And it's emphatic. You could say uh, uh, um, de lego, which means I say to you. But he's saying, I, I say to you. And think about who this is. Think about who this is. This is the great I am. This is the I am. This is the self-existent one. You've heard it said, but I, Jesus standing there in their midst, say to you, the one who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The I am says to you. You've heard it this way, but I say to you. You see, they didn't have the complete story. They didn't have the right interpretation or understanding. And let's not forget uh, the, the God says, but I, the one who gave you the seventh commandment, I, I say to you, let's not forget the Pharisees and the Sadducees were externalists. They were pros. They were professionals at keeping the external, visible portions of the law and all the little laws that they added onto it. They were pros at it, but yet their hearts were wicked. They were clean on the outside, but the, the inside was, was full of dead men's bones, like a tomb, whitewashed tomb. And so they could brag, I've never done that. I've kept the seventh commandment. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But I say to you. And what does he say? But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's what I say to you. You've heard the commandment, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who has looked upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. Now the term looks here... Translate look upon speaks of beholding, and it's in a tense that speaks of a continual habitual action. It's not a glance, it's not seeing something, it is a continual habitual action. The action of gazing upon something, upon here, upon a woman. And the action here is continually habitually done to lust for her. That's what's being said. Looking upon a woman to lust for her, that's what it's talking about. And that speaks in a context sexually, that's what it speaks about. The term lust, epithemeo, speaks of a strong desire or impulse, a longing towards something. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, folks, we don't need to be Greek scholars to figure out what Jesus is saying here. We've all desired things. We've all had strong desires. We all know these impulses. And he's saying everyone who looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And again, he's not speaking of glancing or looking at a woman's direction, her direction, whatever it might be. He's talking about, we'll see the heart underneath in that context. Everyone who looks on a woman for the purpose to desire after her has already committed adultery in his heart. That's what he's saying. It's already happened. And thus, as we'll see, you are guilty of adultery, punishable by death under the law, your sin of your heart has manifest, manifest in your gaze, has rendered you guilty. Everyone who looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Just like anger. Who of us can say we've never committed uh, anger? Who of us can say we haven't lusted in our hearts somehow, sometime in our lives? The self-righteous Pharisees could say I've never broken the command. But the reality is Jesus is saying, First and foremost, as we'll see, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Look at Matthew 15, um, up a little farther. You know, the, the, the Pharisees were all caught up in the hand washing and everything, so they wouldn't get defiled and all that stuff, you know. And Jesus is saying, that's not what defiles you. What defiles you is not from the outside. Matthew 15, verse 17. Do you not understand that everything goes into the mouth, passes the stomach, and is, is, is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. And notice this. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts. He says here, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, and false witness slanders. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands to not defile man. We have a bird knocking on our, our building here wanting to come into the service, but uh, no, we're going to let him in here. He says here, it's what comes from the heart. It's what comes from the heart. So notice what he says. Everyone who's looked upon and went to lust with her has committed adultery with that woman in her heart. Now let me be clear here. The passage is speaking about men lusting for women. That's what it's talking about very specifically here. But certainly women can and do have desires also, and they can are part of that equation when actual adultery is committed, by the way. You see, it takes two adulterers to sinfully tango, okay? It takes two. And Proverbs is full of warnings concerning adultery. Uh, and God's wisdom actually delivers us from that. Proverbs 2.16, to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, leaves the companion of her youth, she's becoming adultery, forgets the covenant with God, and that's the actual act now, okay? Uh, Proverbs 5.1, my son, give attention to my wisdom, that's the word of God, incline your ear to understanding that you may observe discretion, your lips may reserve knowledge, for the lips of adulteress drip honey through their speech, oil, oil is their speech, but in the end she's bitter than wormwood, sharp to it as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Talks about it. She, her steps stay lay hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of her life. Her ways are unstable. She doesn't know it. We know that the adulteress precious, or hunts for precious life. We know he who is cursed of the Lord will fall into the deep pit. The mouth of the adulteress is a deep pit. Proverbs 22, 14. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. That's speaking of the actual act there. But certainly it says men lusting after women. Certainly that's our passage says. But there are other ways that women lust. They desire for a romance with someone's not their spouse. Soap operas, uh, in evening TV, tantalize the flame, these hidden, unacted upon passions. And let me propose something else too here today. Think about uh, women, how you dress around men, especially in the body of Christ. Uh, could it be a platform for temptation? Dare we not stumble? Certainly it is the man's responsibility. And if someone isn't dressed appropriately, maybe because they never understood or never were taught or whatever it might be, uh, the man needs to look away and be gracious and kind. But be aware that that can bring about things. Just simply gazing at images uh, can bring that about for men. Uh, lust can be awakened by simply a woman who's dressed immorally. Now the man has to act on it. I'm given that. It's not the woman's fault. But be aware, you don't want to stumble anybody. Just like in other sins. For all of us, we don't want to do something that might cause someone to stumble. They're the one that sinned, but we might aid to that somehow in what we do. So be aware of that. Now, should all women walk around in burkas then? <laughs> so that no one's tempted? Should we avoid the beach or the pool? Never go to the beach because there's, there's people with bathing suits on? Should we avoid that? No, that's just a rule you would make up, okay? We saw in Colossians, we need Jesus to deliver our hearts so that we don't become the ones that are lusting in our hearts. We need him to deliver us in every circumstance. You're not going to be pulled out of the world till the Lord Jesus comes. And so therefore, it's a matter of the heart and how we deal with those temptations, as we'll say. Now thinking of here, back in our passage, he says, you have heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Wait a second, my heart is just a big thing, a thing pumping blood around. What's he talking about? What's he talking about when we speak of the heart? Well, in the Old Testament, the term lev spoke of the heart, and in the New Testament, cardia kind of makes sense. In Greek, it speaks of the heart. But as we look at scripture, it speaks of the inner man, the inner self. It is the source of all the functions of soul and spirit, emotional, volitional, rational life. Indeed, we see the term heart used throughout scripture synonymously with mind and will. Mind and will. Take, for instance, how God uses these two terms in a parallel sense in Psalm 7. Let's look at Psalm 7, verses. 9 to 10. 
Psalm 7, verses 9 to 10. Oh, let the wicked, or excuse me, the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. Let's say that together. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Revelation 2.23, Revelation 2.23, the Lord Jesus talks about the the Jezebel. He says, I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Minds and hearts. Philippians 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, they use parallel in those cases, but there's some other passages that show that it's not even just parallel, it's used synonymously. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14, talks about the Jews, but their minds were hardened until this very day of the reading of the Old Covenant. And the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Calls it the mind in one portion, calls it the heart in another. Same thing, heart and mind. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, uh, where the writer of Hebrews reiterates the new covenant from the Old Testament, Jeremiah. He says, For this is the covenant will I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. James chapter 126, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. So clearly... The what we think, that's who we are. What's going on in our mind, that's who we are. Speaking of a bad guy in Proverbs 23, verse 7, it says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. So he is. Indeed, Scripture described people based, based on their heart condition. We see it speaks of a, God's word speaks of a change of heart, the sad of heart, the glad of heart, the slow of heart to believe, uncircumcised hearts, hardness of heart, sincerity of heart, pride and arrogance of the heart, and uh, idols of the heart. And so we see uh, unbelievers have hearts of stone. Uh, The redeemed are given new hearts, hearts of flesh, as we'll see. So biblically, the heart represents the inner man, just as our physical hearts are the center of our physical life, Our our mind, our heart, is the center of our spiritual life, of who we are, of who we are. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. So the very clear, simple point Jesus is making is that Jews need not commit the external act to be guilty. But one is rendered guilty from simply the internal act of the heart. One's rendered guilty. Now, before we continue, we need to ask the question, is temptation sin? Is temptation sin? Well, biblically speaking, no, it's not. We know in Scripture that our Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, comes to the aid of those who are tempted because he is a faithful and merciful high priest who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin. Temptation is not sin. It is yielding to temptation. We sang that song earlier. Yield not to temptation, right? And so here, we see that he comes to our aid, that he was tempted and did not sin, but yet we are tempted too, aren't we? But there's scripture also reveals that no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man, 1 Corinthians 10. But God is faithful to provide a way of escape that we can endure it or would endure it. Now, before we acquit ourselves, remember we are fallen creatures, and the line between temptation and sin is very thin. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. And by the way, don't ever think when you're tempted that God's doing it. He does not tempt anyone, by the way. It says there, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. He will never tempt you to do evil. God never tempts you. It is through Satan or through our flesh that we are tempted, by the way. He says here, 
But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or epithume, his own desire. We have a desire for something. We're tempted. We're carried away by it, right? Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Just because we're tempted doesn't mean we've sinned. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you've sinned. But we need to realize sin is just around the corner if we yield to temptation, if we yield to those desires. So back in our passage, Jesus makes it clear, just as he did with anger, it's the issue of the heart that renders us guilty before the action has has been manifest. Now, I need to clarify, we're going to see later on that the, don't make it, don't, don't, don't uh, make a, a, a wrong equivalency. Uh, committing adultery in your heart is committing adultery. You're guilty of it. But it is not the same as actually going out and committing it. Being angry at someone is, you're guilty. You're guilty of murder in that sense. You're guilty of it. But you didn't actually murder yet. There is the act also. But you're still guilty of that even if you have run it through your heart. You see? So back in our passage here. So what's the solution here? Have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? Not your wife, whatever it might be. You're not married? Have you ever desired a man that's not your husband? If so, you're guilty. You're guilty. So what's the solution to the human problem, which is sin? The human problem. And here specifically, sexual purity. Well, the solution here we're going to see and the consequence are exemplified in two illustrations. You must address the offending part or you'll be thrown into hell. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. Look at what he says here. Verse 29, And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you better for you that one of your parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. That's a very interesting statement. And as I said, don't leave without hearing the explanation, okay? Tearing out your eyeball and cutting off your hand? This is where the uh, non-believing guys on History Channel and stuff would say, look at how crazy the Bible is. Well, they're not seeing it rightly because they don't have the Spirit of God. They're not understanding the intent because these are spiritual words and spiritual thoughts and spiritually appraised. And God's Spirit gives us understanding into what Jesus meant. And we'll see that. We're going to see for the non-believer... You must take drastic action to address the part that causes you to stumble. Now, before we start looking at this, this is kind of a difficult passage. I want to make some initial observations here. First of all, uh, it's extremely important to note in the original language, uh, verses 27 and 28, speaking of you all, universal declaration of guilt upon everyone who's lusted. But then we get to 29 and 30, he moves from plural to singular, making the solution. And if you're singular, now it's down to you. You're all guilty if you do this, but down to you. Here's, here's uh, what you need to do. And so we have a universal declaration of condemnation and then a personal solution or an eternal consequence. And if your right eye makes you stumble, and, if, and then verse 30, and if your right hand makes you stumble. The term stumble, stumble is scandalazzo. Uh, it's derived from a word that referred to uh, putting on a stick some bait and then where a trap is placed. And when a careless animal touches the stick, the bait trap shuts. The idea is something that would block or impede our way or trip us up that we might fall, uh, make us stumble in this context into sin. So he's saying whatever causes you to get tripped up, caught in sin, in this area specifically, it must be drastically addressed. Otherwise, you will suffer eternal consequence. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of your parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body go into hell. Now, you might ask, why does Jesus use the terms right eye and right hand? Some say the Jews thought those were the most valuable things, your right eye and your right hand, but what about left-handed people, right? (laughs) 
Okay. Um, that's possible. But what do we lust with? Our eyes. And who do you, who, who, how do you touch a woman with your hands, right? Those are the offending parts. Those are the offending parts, okay? They're the parts that are involved in the actions. So, therefore, you need to gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. Is that what he's saying? You need to be very careful to interpret this with the intent God ordained and interpret it rightly. Or we could do so to our own physical peril and eternal detriment. So what is he saying here about this radical action? Is he saying physically do this, pull out the eye and throw it from you and cut off your hands? Most interpreters would say he's speaking of drastic action to sin, and I would agree initially, but I'm not sure that's the whole point here. I'm really not. You say, why, Greg? First of all, look at the consequence for not dealing drastically. End of verse 20. Then for your body to be thrown into hell. Uh, end of uh, 30, or middle of 30. For it is better that your one of your parts, your body perish, than for your whole body to go into hell. Let me ask you this. Will believers be thrown in hell? No. He's speaking to non-believers here. He is speaking to non-believers. And it's important that we understand that. He's saying if there isn't drastic action taken, you're going to go to hell. If there isn't drastic action taken to take care of sin, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. Now, everywhere you see this same analogy shared in Scripture, Matthew 18, Mark 9, 43, 45, 47, it's always that they would not be cast into hell. It has to do with non-believers going to judgment. So we need to recognize these statements are not directed to us, okay? And we'll talk about that. (laughs) But those on the precipice of paying the eternal price for their sins. On a side note, uh, please don't use this passage to gain your theology on how to deal with sexual sin. Um, don't use it. Remember we saw in Colossians chapter 2, these are of matters to be sure to have the appearance of wisdom, self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body. They have no value, thank you, against fleshly indulgence. You poke your eye out, you cut your hand off, that's not going to help you. Because what we're going to see, it's the matter of the heart. That brings it about. So then, what's the point here? Unless the body part that causes you to be ensnared is not completely or drastically addressed, then you're going to hell. And what's the body part that needs drastic action taken? But I say to you, everyone who looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. His heart. I've already committed the sin in my heart before my eyes and my hands act upon it. My heart is the offending part. And he's using this radical illustration that you need to address the offending part of your body, which in this context is the heart. And remember he said back in the Beatitudes, blessed are those with a pure heart. Pure heart, cleansed hearts. And so as I've studied this passage, I don't believe Jesus is saying... Uh, drastically address the things that will cause you to sin from the outside. As some people would try to do. Get rid of the internet. Don't watch TV. Hold your head down so you never see a woman. Or the endless things you could do to protect yourself, supposedly. Now, some might be wise, but the, but the issue is the heart. The issue is the heart. And folks, we need to recognize the needs for our hearts to be cleansed, to be purified. You see, every one apart from God has an impure pure heart. Now, because someone thinks they got a clean heart, that doesn't mean they have a clean heart. Proverbs 29, verse 9, Who can say, I've cleansed my heart, I'm pure from sin? It's sin is the issue. Uh, God is the one uh, who weighs the motives of the heart. Uh, power 16, too. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. They say, I'm fine. No. But the Lord weighs the motives. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There's a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. Man apart from God does not have a pure heart. And we must acknowledge our need for cleansing. Man has a defiled, deceitful, sinful heart, which separates him from a holy God. You see, sin has caused separation between us and God. 
And our inner man, our thinking, our being is defiled by sin. And folks, uh, God sees everything, but our hearts are more deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each according to his ways for the result of his deeds. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 12 that what comes from our heart is good or bad. Matthew 12, you could turn up there for a second, Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. I say to you that every careless word men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words it shall be justified, by your words you shall be condemned. So let me ask you this. Has your heart been cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for a cleansed heart? You see, if you haven't, there are consequences. Look at our passage. End of verse 29. For your whole body to be thrown into hell. End of verse 3. Then your whole body be thrown, go into hell. The consequence for the sin at the heart level, not even the action, is hell. And every one of you have been angry. Every one of you, I believe, have lusted. Everyone's fallen into that. The term hell here, Gehenna, in uh, Greek, uh, has the Hebrew word, speaks of valley and then a deep ravine. And it was associated, this ravine was associated with the god Moloch and his disgusting rite of infant sacrifice. It's literally the valley of Hinnon, where the filth and dead animals of the city were cast up there and burned. Trash was perpetually burned there. It's a fit symbol for the future home of all the unrepentant, wicked men and women who have rejected Christ. It's a foul, forbidding place where fire, smoke, stench never ceased. Uh, thus, we see it's hell. So then... The consequence is is hell. Jesus shared uh, to uh, in Luke chapter twelve fourteen. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. After that, I have no more they can do. But I warn you to fear fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. God has the authority to cast you into hell for your sins. And if you die in your sins, you will find yourself being cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, unbelieving, and abominable, and murderous, and immoral persons, there you go, right there, just in the heart, that's all it takes, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God in human flesh says you're guilty enough if you thought it. Guilty enough for hell. You need to be cleansed. And how is it we're cleansed? The good news is that uh, you can have a clean heart today. You can be cleansed of your sin. There is no way for you to overcome sin and death on your own, but one overcame sin and death. God took on human flesh and he died for your sins and he rose from the dead and he overcame sin and death. And if you believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you will be delivered from the sentence to hell and you'll receive eternal life. And you'll have a cleansed heart. You have a cleansed heart. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's grace, the person of Jesus, has appeared. The offer is for everyone. Instructing us to die in godliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, that means pay the price, from every lawless deed and purify, purify for himself, a, uh, for a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 
back in Acts when uh, they were debating about uh, the Gentiles that came to faith, Peter claims the truth about what happened to the Gentiles. says, God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Acts chapter 15, verse 9. You can have a cleansed heart today. You see, back in Ezekiel 36, the Lord foreshadowing what he's going to do with Israel when he saves them on that day shares this. But the same reality of salvation applies to us in Christ. He says, then I will sprinkle... Ezekiel 36, 25, clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. This is Ezekiel, by the way, and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances, observe my ordinances. Get a new heart, a cleansed heart. It's Jesus that changes our hearts. Remember, we saw in Colossians, in him we've been made complete. And we were, we have been circumcised spiritually through the circumcision of Christ. He has cleansed our hearts. Our sins have been forgiven. So friend, turn to Christ today. Christ has done all the work. If you're weary and heavy laden, turn to Jesus. He'll give you a rest for your soul. Rest for your souls. So then I believe what he's saying here to these Jews is that there must be drastic action taken to deal with the part that causes sin. It's the heart. It's got to be changed. It's got to die in a sense. It's got to be cut off and a new one brought forth in a new heart. Now, some of you might be saying, I've trusted Jesus. I have a cleansed heart, but I find myself being tempted to lust. You talk about anger too, same thing. Not same sin, but you know, same in that context. Whether it's through the internet, TV, or just walking around, what can I do? I seem so helpless. What can I do? What type of action needs to be taken for, for in the case of a believer? Do we run out and take drastic physical action? You know, that phony so-called uh, early Christian apologist origin, he castrated himself. Okay, that, that's not, that's going to solve it? Not when it's a matter of the heart, origin. Sorry about that. Terrible. Is physical mutilation of the body that which keeps us from sinning? Absolutely not. Remember we saw in Colossians chapter 2, these things are of no value against flesh and dogs. All your rules are of no value. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need him for all areas of sin. It's Jesus Christ, God, uh, in whom we are complete, who will deliver us when we seek him, when we trust him, when we rely on him. And when we fail, we confess our sin. And we're forgiven. And we're forgiven. Jesus is the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you've been made complete. So set your mind on the things above, right? Not the things of earth. Now, something to address here that I haven't shared before, at least in this context, is if you're struggling with sexual temptation, maybe there's other sin in your life you haven't confessed. And you keep going to Jesus, but you got other sin you haven't confessed. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear. I can go to Jesus all day long. I need to be clean before him and confess sin and then go to Lord Jesus. Then go to Lord Jesus. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Don't think you're any greater than anyone else than that. And God is faithful, not you, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, the only way we are to be delivered from temptation is to allow faithful God to deliver us. And how do we get delivered when we were saved? We believed the gospel and we trusted in Jesus. Lord Jesus, save me. In the same way, I need you to deliver me from these temptations right now, Lord Jesus. And he'll use his word, as we'll see. He'll use his word. He'll use his spirit. doesn't mean we don't fail. We do trip up. We're, we're not glorified yet. We confess our sin. We are those who confess sin. But we go to Jesus for deliverance. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
You go to him in the same manner you did when you got saved and you trust him in the same manner when you got saved to deliver you from that temptation and he will do it. But part of the means he does it is through his word. It's through his word that he uses to protect us. Look at Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Verse 11. And do this. I'll start reading as we go here. Knowing the time that's already for you to awaken from sleep. Romans 13, 11. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Verse 12. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness upon the arm of light. Because of who you are and where you're going, that ought to motivate you to set those things aside. Let us behave properly as in the day, not, a, not excuse me, deeds of darkness upon the arm of light. Let us be a property of the day, not carousing drugs, nor in sexual promiscuity, sensuality, or strife, and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. How do I put him on? I keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, I walk in fellowship with him. I trust him. I walk with him. Putting on speaks of putting on clothing. When you get up in the morning, you put on your clothes. They don't, they don't fall off during the day, right? You put on Christ the minute you get up. You start thinking about him, walking with him, fellowshipping with him, meditating on him through his word, having it dwell richly in your heart, and that protects you. And he will protect you. It's interesting, when we get to Colossians in our passage, if then you've been raised, Colossians 3, with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. Before you have died, your life is hidden. With Christ in God, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members, eyeballs and arms and hands, members of your body, and and you'll see your heart, as dead to immorality. Because I'm a new creation in Christ. The old man has died. The power of sin doesn't have its power anymore. I can say no to it in the context of turning to Jesus. It's something totally totally different. It only applies to believers who are in Christ. Therefore, as we'll see, kill it off. Kill it off. That's really what it's going to be. Clock wants to see that. I get sick in my stomach when I hear of counselors who say, I want to help you with your struggle. Uh, sorry. No. Stop struggling and put sin to death. Stop it. Stop it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, say no. Confess when you fail. Trust the Lord. As we walk with Christ, he will deliver us when we, as walking with him, say no to sin. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to see it for what it is. When we fail, when we do fail. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us. A few more passages to illustrate this. When I have a right view of things, it directs me the right way rather than, you know, as I'm seeing, let's say this uh, woman comes in and I'm drawn to that woman, I turn away. Lord, help me not to see her in a lustful way. Help me to see her from your perspective. Change my heart towards this person and help me look the right way. Hebrews 13.4, let the marriage bed be held in honor, let marriage be be undefiled, for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Proverbs chapter 5 talks about drinking water from your own cistern. Talks about that. And from your own well, why should your springs be be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For, and here's the key, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. Fear God. Be thinking about him and, and function rightly in the gifts that God has given. Marriage is a blessed gift. Now, don't forget, Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 7, married people shouldn't be holding back from one another except for prayer. Proverbs 7 talks about putting the word and treasuring them within you. 
Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. Call for understanding that they may keep you from the adulteress. It's going to guide your heart. God's word. God's word. Jesus, through his word, by his spirit, is going to deliver you. If you go to him. We all know Proverbs 19.11, 1.19.11, thy word I've treasured in my heart, that I'm not sinning against thee. Amen. But we've got to read 10. With all my heart I have sought thee. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. Thy word I have treasured in thy heart, that I'm not sinning against thee. I'm seeking the Lord Jesus with all my heart. And I'm asking him, don't let me wander. Protect me. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I've got my word treasured in a heart that I wouldn't sin. First Peter chapter uh, 2, as alien strangers abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war your soul. God's word tells me, hey, get out of that war. Abstain from it. Paul, in reminding the Thessalonians about the commandments that he gave them by the authority of Jesus, says this is your will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Talks about it. Let God's word work in your heart. Let Jesus, through his spirit, use his word to walk with him. So you, you walk rightly and it directs you and redirects you and corrects you. Paul tells Timothy that those who name the name of the Lord should abstain from wickedness. It means no. Right? Um, turn to that. We'll be finished up here. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And he's addressing the, 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 the reality that in a house there's many vessels, uh, some for honor, some for dishonor. He's making a point that in the church there's going to be some bad people in there. But what are we to do about it? Are we to go out and throw the vessels out? Well, obviously we see it, but here the point that he's going to say is, nevertheless, 2 Timothy 2.19, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, Okay. So, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness, right? Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but vessels of wood and earthenware, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, flee youthful lusts and pursue faith, love, peace with those, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart, brothers, true brothers and sisters. Maybe some of you are temporarily stopping sin, but you, or you got caught or convicted or whatever it might be, but you haven't filled yourself with the right things. Fill yourself up with the truth of God and walk with the God of the truth. Say no. So you fall again, say no. Confess your sin, be cleansed, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeking and serving him with those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. There's plenty of examples in scripture of how we deal with accountability, or deal with, deal with temptation. And it isn't through just accountability partners and internet filters and all that stuff. That's not it. It's a matter of the heart. Some things may be wise, but, uh, it comes down to a heart that is yielded to Christ and trusts in him in the same level you did when you got saved, and he will deliver you. He will deliver you. So how can we walk in sexual purity? Today we've seen if you lust, you're guilty to go to hell. And some of you realize you're guilty. And Jesus makes it clear that drastic action must take place or you'll go to hell. So how do you get a cleansed heart? Turn to Jesus Christ and believe in him for salvation of your sins, and you'll be saved. You have a cleansed heart through faith. And then for those of us, we still get tempted. But let Jesus change your heart towards people and circumstances and situations. Let the Lord Jesus uh, change the way you think. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and let him live through you. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Trust him to deliver you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you that in him we are complete. Lord, may we not seek other ways to stop sinning, Lord God. 
Lord, we desire to walk righteously. We don't desire to fall and yield to areas that are dishonoring and unholy, Lord God. And so we ask you to help us seek you and seek your son, Lord God, and to allow your word to work in our hearts so that we see things differently. And Lord, help us to remember that we are dead to sin uh, when we abide in Jesus and we are alive to you because we've died and our life is hidden in Christ. Father, thank you so much, and thank you for your word, and thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.